We're going to read from the book of Luke, uh, chapter 9 from verse 37, and that starts on page 867 of the Church Bibles. So Luke 9, verse 37. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and shatters him, and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demons threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. But while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among all of you is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Thank you very much. And let's keep our Bibles open. Um, that will help a lot as we go through the passage together. But let me lead us in prayer as we turn to God's word. Our Father in heaven, last week we heard the words you spoke on that mountaintop. This is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And so our prayer this morning is that by your spirit you would help us do exactly that. Please um, help me not to get in the way and help all of us to have open ears and hearts to what you're saying. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, yes, let me add my welcome to Chalmers. It's really good to see um, Lots of familiar faces and, and some visitors. You're very welcome if you're visiting us. Uh, there's an outline on the back of the notice sheet if you want to see where we're going or just kind of try and work out how long is left. Um, the, sh the points get shorter as we go through, so uh, don't panic if that's you. But you'll see right at the top of the outline, I've put um, this question. Do you have any claims to fame? So it's any claims to fame time, any brush with greatness in your life? Uh, here's my top five, okay? Slightly tenuous, but let's go for it anyway. Um, so number five, coming in at number five, as a schoolboy, I once shook the hand of the Queen's cousin. The Queen's cousin, yeah, that's right. You don't have to clap, that's absolutely fine. Number four, I was once in the same church as the sister of a front bench politician. 
That was quite close, I thought. Number three, my wife was friends at university with the daughter of a celebrity preacher in the States. Yeah, she's American. You can ask her who. Um, number two, this one actually, I, I got excited at this one. I was once in the same playground in Edinburgh as Benedict Cumberbatch. Yeah, he wasn't playing. He, he, had, he had family there. Um, I might even have brushed his coat when I was putting Grace up um, onto a climbing frame deliberately near him. Um, and you might think, well, what can follow that? Well, actually, number one was quite a big one. So, number one, I once studied the Bible for a bit with a celebrated actor in London. He's not as famous as Benedict, so we're not that, that famous, but I was a bit starstruck. Um, a mutual friend had put us in touch, and uh, as he was just interested in Christianity at the time. And I uh, Googled his name, and normally nothing happens when you do that, but in this case, like, he was actually someone. He just won an Olivier Award for a big West End musical, He's about to film a cameo in a film with um, Hugh Jackman, Russell Crowe. He was about to star at the National Theatre. I was a little bit intimidated, to be honest, a little bit scared, and quite excited, um, especially when he said, oh, come along to a rehearsal. Come and see what we do. We're, we're working on a new play. And more than that, the play they were working on, was it had some Christian themes in it. It was about grace. And so to my shock, he asked me to come and speak to the cast about the theme of grace. I mean, come on. Suddenly a brush with greatness had become like teaming up with greatness. I walked into this huge rehearsal room at the National Theatre. I knew I was way out of my league and I was loving it. Um, I actually had to take my shoes off, not because it's kind of holy ground, uh, but they do a warm-up of indoor football, or this cast did anyway, and I remember we were playing kind of keepy-uppies with our socks on, and I thought to myself, how did I get here? Um, to be honest, I think some of the other people in the circle were also thinking, how did, like, how did that guy get here? Who is he? He's not in the play. Um, the simple answer was, I was with him. Like, you know that guy, the, the kind of big star, the one you've heard of? I'm with him. Like, he's invited me along with him. Why am I telling you that? not just to, to share my claims to fame. Uh, I'm telling us that because I want us to imagine how excited the original 12 followers of Jesus must have been by this point in Luke's gospel. You see, forget an A-list actor. Jesus Christ was the most famous man in the country by this stage. He'd actually taken that mantle on from John the Baptist, the previous most famous man in the country, um, who, who was a kind of preacher and a prophet, and people flocked out of town to see him. And John said, I'm not even worthy to tie the sandal straps of Jesus, the one who comes next. And actually, Jesus, he wasn't just putting on a good show. Like, the disciples had seen firsthand that he could back up what he said. Jesus was a man with genuine power like no one else. He was healing sick people with a touch, even with a word, actually, from a distance. He was casting out demons. He was teaching like no one else before or since. He'd even, by this point of Luke, raised the dead twice. I mean, forget a celebrity actor. Jesus was the real deal, someone with power and authority and ability like no one else. But the most amazing bit of all, I think, for the disciples would have been that they didn't just have a brush with this kind of greatness of Jesus. It wasn't just a brief handshake or a glimpse in the crowds or the selfie it would be now, wouldn't it? No, by this point, like that actor did with me, Jesus has actually kind of taken them along with him and said, look, follow me around. They'd had a kind of front road seat. In fact, not just a seat, 
by this point in Luke, he'd actually invited them to join him on stage, to join in the work, to be participants, not just observers now. So if you've got your Bible there, look back to the start of chapter 9, and page 866, chapter 9, verse 1. That's the moment when Jesus called these 12 followers together, 9 verse 1, and he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases and sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's the moment when, when he says, look, it's not just me who's going to do this work. I'm going to include you in it. Join me. Share my power. Share my, um, share my authority. Share my mission. And you can just imagine I mean, what must it have felt like for them. Like, these are just ordinary guys suddenly have become part of something absolutely extraordinary. I'm sure they were asking, how did we get here? It's the same answer. I'm with him. And he is very, very special. Peter has just clocked at this point that actually the only conceivable explanation as to who Jesus is is that he must be God's long-promised king, the Christ. That's in 9 verse 20. Who do people say that I am? And then Peter answers, you're the Christ of God. So he's the long-promised saviour of the world, the long-promised king and rescuer of God's people. That is to say, he's greater than anyone else in the Bible so far. Greater than Moses, greater than Elijah. He's the, he's the figure that the whole world has been building up to. And actually, it's not just Peter who's concluded that. Uh, God the Father said that. They've just been up the mountain and had this extraordinary glimpse of Jesus' glory in all his kind of splendor. Uh, as Jay put it last week, brighter than Daz Ultra can make you. Um, other, other soaps are available. Um, but none of them can make someone kind of glow with glory the way that Jesus did on the mountain. So that's the kind of high point we've reached in Luke's Gospel. And next week, and this is why uh, in the reading we, we read verse 51 right at the end, because that, that's, that's the start of next week's passage. We're, next week we're starting Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. And we're going to be doing that um, in our small groups all the way to Easter, and, and we'll, we'll hear a bit of it up here on Sundays as well. From next week, Jesus, the king, is going to travel to the royal city. The king is going to go to Jerusalem. But before that, he's got a really important lesson to teach us. It's really striking. Between Peter realizing you're the king and Jesus setting off on the journey to Jerusalem, we get a couple of important messages. We had last week, in fact, it's the same message twice, really. We had it last week with Jay, if you were here, that actually Jesus has to go to the cross. And then we're going to see it again today. Um, the issue that, that he's teaching is, what does true greatness in God's kingdom look like? Having seen that Jesus is the great king, we need to understand what does true greatness look like in his kingdom before we set off on the journey. So fundamental that God has to audibly say from the top of a mountain, listen to him as he's saying this to us. And I wonder if we will this morning. So there's the theme this morning. What does true greatness look like in Jesus' kingdom? What does it look like? Does it look like befriending an A-lister and having a story you can tell? Does it look like meeting a royal highness or getting in with the political powers or being recognized in public or having a place at the elite table or, or climbing to the top of the greasy pole or getting to speak at the National Theatre? No. Not at all, actually. See, true greatness in God's kingdom looks like 
being willing to join the king in humble, compassionate service. That's absolutely basic Christianity. I know we don't, it's not always explained as basic Christianity, but it is. That's what, where Jesus starts. He says, look, guys, I'm going to the cross, and you need to pick up your cross and follow me if you want to be one of my disciples. Costly, humble, sacrificial service. That's the big principle. This morning, we're going to have kind of three examples of it. We're going to see uh, the example of Jesus himself. Uh, That's verses 37 to 45. Then we'll get two smaller examples of what it looks like on the ground. Um, But Jesus kind of sets the tone. So that's our first point. True greatness in God's kingdom looks like the long-suffering, compassionate service of God's majestic king. So let's pick it up. Verse 37 uh, of chapter 9. Uh, We're just coming down after the mountain glory. We've had the transfiguration. And Jesus comes down the mountain to see a scene which is a complete mess. There's a huge crowd there. um, And there's this man, this dad, who's absolutely desperate for the terrible state of his only child. The child is possessed by an evil spirit, desperately ill. And the disciples, as we'll see in a moment, have failed to cast the demon out. I actually had a mini version of this uh, a week ago. Our, our son Josh, he had croup, uh, so kind of um, a viral infection, respiratory infection, but uh, it meant he couldn't breathe one night. Uh, that can happen when you're young. Um, and we actually had to pile off to, to emergency at the sick kids' hospital. And I was, I was doing a bit like this dad. I was kind of walking in with him saying, look, I need help, I need help. That's the situation, but not just for one night and um, just, just uh, kind of a bad cough or whatever. This is a serious, desperate situation. Now, the disciples, notice, have not managed to help. Verse 40, I begged your disciples to cast it out, he says, but they could not. Puzzling that, that they could not, because do you remember what we saw in chapter 9, verse 1? Jesus gave them authority over all demons and to cure diseases. So strange, so what's happened there that they could not do this? And it's even more puzzling when Jesus reacts, verse 41, by saying, Something that sounds weary or kind of exasperated. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to bear with you, to be with you, sorry, and bear with you? What's going on there? Like, who's Jesus criticizing here? Not the dad. The the dad comes out of it well. He brings his son to the one person who can help. Looking to Jesus for help when you're desperate is always the right place to turn. So not him. So then who is Jesus criticizing as this faithless and twisted generation. Well, that does sound pretty broad, doesn't it? I think it's pretty much everyone else in the crowd. We actually know, if you look at the other eyewitness accounts in Mark's Gospel and Matthew's Gospel of this, we know from Mark that some of the people in the crowd were opponents of Jesus, and they'd got into a massive Barney argument with his disciples about their failure. I'm sure they're like, ha, we told you, we told you you couldn't do it. It seems like they're treating this, this child's desperate situation as a kind of spectator sport, just a test rather than a personal family tragedy. I'm sure that wearies Jesus' heart. But actually, I think he's also criticizing his own disciples here. We see in Matthew's account, they showed zero faith. In Mark's account, they don't even bother to pray. Jesus says that was the problem. Um, maybe their previous success had gone to their head. Maybe they think, we can just do this. We can nail this. This will be fine. We've done this before. And they didn't think to pray. 
Actually, the striking thing, and if you've been drifting, zone in for this, the striking thing about Luke's account is that he doesn't focus on the disciples or the crowd. He puts the camera onto Jesus. You notice that? Verse 41, we hear Jesus' question, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? See, Jesus Christ, faced with this, this tragic situation, a, a desperate father, a family that's just had evil wreak havoc upon it, and seeing the faithlessness of his disciples, and seeing the kind of warped motives of the crowd, quite enjoying the fact that they couldn't do anything about it. Well, how does Jesus feel? Grieved, frustrated, weary of the faithlessness that he's surrounded by. I wonder, for those of us who are Christians here, I wonder if you've ever thought about that as one of the burdens that Jesus had to bear when he was on earth. The Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, the Son of God on earth. Have you ever thought how he had to bear with the faithlessness of people around him, the prayerlessness of people around him, the self-reliance of people around him, the pride of people around him, even his own disciples. See, Jesus had to bear with ungodly people every single day, people who weren't loving his father, weren't trusting his father. I wonder if we ever think how lonely that must have been for him. And the question he raises here is, how long is he going to put up with it? Do you see that? Because he's the son of man, that is God's judge, Daniel 7, the judge of all the world. He's God's chosen king. He's the boss. We've just seen he's got the glory on the mountain. But here he is, back down in the tragic mess of human existence and the awful sin of our proud responses. How long is he going to put up with it? What do you think the answer is to that question? How long... Is he going to put up with it in Luke's gospel, do you think? Well, in the first instance, just here, long enough to help this guy. You notice that? At least long enough to help this family. So no sooner has Jesus expressed his weary frustration, in fact, no one's prayerful or faithful enough to help, and he himself rolls up his sleeves and shows the man compassion. Look at end of verse 41. Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. How long is he going to bear with? Well, long enough to help. Long enough to help. doesn't just walk off in a half. He helps. He puts the family back together. It's not the first time in Luke that he's, he's reunited a family tragically torn apart by, by sin or evil or, or death even. He gave Jairus back his daughter. See, he may be the king of kings, the majestic son of God, but he's so full of compassion, he serves the needy. He serves families in the grip of sin and evil and the effects of the fall when he puts them back together. How long is he going to bear with us? Well, long enough to help. Long enough to really help. Which brings us to verses 33, uh, 43 sorry, to 45. In lots of ways, these are the most important verses to, to get our heads and hearts around this morning. And I want you to see how Luke connects these verses with what we've just seen. Look at it, verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. I mean, you would be, wouldn't you? Extraordinary power. But listen, while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, 
Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Let's go back to that question. How long is Jesus going to put up with this faithless generation? Well, long enough to get to the cross. Long enough to be handed over through an unfair trial. Long enough to be killed by the people he made. And he's going to judge. It's absolutely extraordinary. This is now the second time in Luke he's, he's explained to his disciples he's going to the cross. He said it in 9.22 as well. And interestingly, those two statements, I am going to the cross, are either side of God the Father on the mountain saying, listen to him. Listen. This is the direction Jesus is headed. The cross-bound Christ. It's the heart of what we need to listen to him about. In fact, he points it out in verse 44, doesn't he, with that amazing phrase, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man, that's the judge of all the world, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. That is, I am voluntarily handing myself in to violent and unjust people. How long am I going to bear with this faithless, twisted generation? Long enough to help them, to really help them. Go all the way along that lonely road to the cross. It's just an amazing thought, this. I, I think we sometimes think, if you're a Christian, you, you may have thought about this before at Easter when thinking about the Garden of Gethsemane. You know that moment when Jesus is praying, he knows he's going to the cross, and he prays to his Father, is, is there any other way? And then he resolves, no, I'm, there is no other way, so I'm going to the cross. Not, your, not my will, but yours. And we often think kind of that last night he had a choice. He could have walked away. Could have saved himself and not saved us. But actually, that choice was a daily choice every step of the journey. It was the choice at the start of the journey here. Any moment, he could have just headed back up the mountain, back to the glory and the majesty, returned to his heavenly home, destroyed his enemies, judged the world. Any moment. But despite his majesty, he deliberately sets his face like a flint to Jerusalem. That is, he chose, listen to this, he chose to be downwardly mobile for the salvation of others. I'll say it again because that's kind of our key application this morning. Jesus, God's majestic king, chose to be downwardly mobile for the salvation of others. He's already said that's not just the pattern of his life, it's the pattern of our lives if we're following him. Chapter 9, verse 23, do you remember that last week? If anyone would come after him, after me, sorry, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Not just the shape of his life, but the shape of our lives. Downward mobility for the sake of others and their eternal salvation. And of course, that is so different to all of our natural instincts, isn't it? And to the societal pressures around us, the temptations we face. Most of us have had it drilled into us, whether by the schools we were part of or the, the universities we end up at or the, the adverts we watch or the workplaces we're employed in or the families we come from or the friends that we know. Most of us have had it drilled into us that the best approach in life is to climb, climb the ladder, whether the social ladder, the property ladder, the promotion ladder, the wealth ladder, the greasy pole of power ladder. 
It's worth remembering, Jesus Christ headed in the opposite direction. He comes down the mountain of glory to get his hands dirty helping people on the grounds. When we see in that verse 51, and, and, and we'll go on to see it more and more, when he sets his face like a flint to, to go to Jerusalem, that picks up the language from Isaiah 50 of the suffering servant, the servant who knew he was going to an unjust death, but did it anyway because that was the way to save people for eternity. See, that's the message here, point one, that the true greatness in God's kingdom looks like the long-suffering service of God's majestic king. And he does call us to follow in his footsteps. If you're just arriving at uni as someone who knows Jesus, I guess you've got all sorts of hopes and dreams for these years. They can be very special years. I wonder if one of your hopes is to keep in step with Jesus, to follow him as you walk along. Well, if we're going to do that, it will look like compassionate service, humble service of others. But of course, like probably lots of us are in the room, the disciples are struggling, struggling to get our hearts around this, struggling to get our heads around this. Look at verse 45. They did not understand this saying. It was concealed from them so they might not perceive it. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. I sometimes wonder why they were afraid. Was it they had no idea or was it they had some idea and thought, you can't be serious? Maybe they didn't want to find out quite what it involved. But Jesus is kind, and and he's actually going to take them and us on this kind of school of discipleship, all of Luke 9 to 19, the whole journey to Jerusalem. He's going to be teaching us what it looks like to follow a cross-bound king. And the first two examples, um, just more briefly now as we move on to point two, uh, these two examples, two and three on our handout, will give us kind of on the ground what this kind of attitude looks like in practice. So point two. True greatness in God's kingdom will look like, for example, welcoming the least impressive in Jesus' name. Now, the disciples have another massive failure. It's so crass, given what's just happened. It's almost funny. It's shocking. In verse 46, an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. I mean, that is shocking, isn't it? Jesus has just said that he, the majestic king of glory, is going to serve and suffer and hand himself over for the salvation of others. And they are arguing about who's the greatest. I mean, who knows what triggered it? Was it that um, the ones up the mountain maybe were saying, well, we've seen something special. Jesus took us three, Peter, James, and John. Was it the ones down the mountain feeling a bit insecure because they didn't manage to cast out the demon? Maybe the top three were saying, well, we would have done it if we were down there. Who knows? Who knows what they were arguing about? Maybe they just wanted to know who would get the best seats next to Jesus. But however it started, I mean, you can imagine another weary internal sigh from Jesus, especially as they're still doing this all the way to the Last Supper, fighting about who's the best. But Jesus graciously starts to set them right. And he does it by putting a child in the centre, verse 47. Now we need to clock here, in our culture, we're quite child-centric, so stick a child in the middle of a circle and it's all like, oh, let's engage, let's talk, let's go, oh, children are important. And there it's more a case of they should be not really seen and not really heard. And so Jesus is taking a kind of low status, what someone, what um, they may have felt was, was not important enough person for mighty King Jesus and his, his band of disciples. We're far too important to faff around with silly little kids. 
But Jesus disagrees. He says, stop arguing about who's greatest and start thinking about who you would be willing to serve in my name. It's quite a shift that, isn't it? A shift from who's the greatest to who am I willing to serve for the sake of Jesus. As he puts it, whoever receives this little child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who's least among you all is the one who's great. I think that last sentence is about Jesus. Probably he's talking about himself. Look, I'm setting you an example of greatness, and I'm willing to serve. I'm willing to serve a faithless and and crooked generation. So you be willing to serve people. And notice, not just people who will give you something back, not just those who are going to add value to the church or the kingdom, those who have wealth perhaps or time to serve or, or status that would make us kind of seem like we had a better reputation as church. No, even the, most, the least impressive, even a little child, pour yourselves out in service, receive them. It's a good reminder that actually at the start of a year in church, and there are all sorts of serving needs always around a church family, some like formal rotors, some just saying hello to people and being warm and welcoming on a Sunday morning or a Tuesday night or whatever. And lots of what is needed is unseen and unimpressive. Most of us here, we have no idea who gives their Saturdays to set out these chairs or clean the church so that we can meet safely. Uh, most of us have no idea who was in the various rooms around the building teaching children this morning so that children can be welcomed and be told about Jesus. Or we have no idea those staying up late at night to organize the, the practical stuff, the logistics, the, all the organization about the pandemic, all the organization when we move out of this building and, and renovate and find somewhere to go. There's so much serving going on in an unseen way. And Jesus says, be willing to serve. Don't ask um, who's the greatest. Ask who am I willing to serve? And we should be willing to serve even the least for the sake of Jesus. And of course, the child is a striking example. Someone who's low status, on the margins, a taker, not a giver, unimpressive looking. Someone who's not going to help with the bills or the job. Again, at university, there are people that if you become their friends, it kind of it's to your credit. And there are people, if you become their friends, well, people are going to ask, why are you hanging out with them? But someone walking in Jesus' footsteps will do exactly that. And I guess for us as a church family, the question is, will this be our attitude to the community around us? It's actually quite a diverse community around Morningside, uh, much more than it may appear. Uh, the question is, are we willing to welcome and reach out with the gospel to all kinds of people, whether or not they're going to kind of help the church run or help the coffers or whatever else, the budget? Wonderfully, the Christian church is not like a golf club. Um, although actually, I've noticed in Scotland, golf clubs seem a bit more friendly. Um, down south in London, where I was, they're really exclusive. Like, uh, you have to have the right kind of social credentials to get in, the right bank balance. You have to kind of add value to the group. Um, or like the badminton club I played in here, where you had to, the first night you had to be assessed for whether you could play badminton well enough to join the club. Jesus is not like that, and so his church is not like that. Welcome the least important in Jesus' name. Okay, let's move on to... Um, our final example. That was our second example. Welcome the least impressive in Jesus' name rather than being focused on our own status. 
But finally, third example, true greatness looks like open-handed teamwork, not tribalism in Jesus' name. Open-handed teamwork, not tribalism in Jesus' name. Let's have a look at verse 49 onwards. And again, the disciples are way off, way off. So John answered, Master, verse 49, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Jesus said to him, do not stop him for the one who's not against you is for you. Again, John's gospel reveals the disciples are focused on themselves, doesn't it? And we've seen that in every episode, actually. So with the demon-possessed boy, they were self-reliant. They didn't pray. With the argument about who's greatest, they're self-promoting, thinking about themselves, not who to serve, and now they're self-obsessed. They decide that this guy shouldn't be allowed to do the kind of things they're doing. He's not one of the official 12. Turns out they're struggling with what Jesus said last week, that if anyone would come after me, they should deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And the problem, it's really clear, the problem in, in verse 49 is that, notice, he, it's not that he doesn't follow Jesus, this man who's doing this, it's that he doesn't follow us. He doesn't follow with us. And I imagine it must have been galling for them, actually, because this guy's succeeding in demon, demon um, exorcism where they failed. I must have been galling when someone else has ministry success rather than them. Jesus gives them a straightforward rebuke. Um, if, uh, do not stop him, for the one who's not against you is for you. Again, the disciples are way out of step with Jesus, but I wonder if we recognize something of our own tendencies here. I think it could be a danger, couldn't it? With, I think the bigger the church you are in, the more momentum there is, the more that's going on. Easy to think, well, kind of, uh, if it's got the charmer's badge on, great, I'm really on to that, praying for that, keen for that, trust that. A little bit suspicious about anything that's not Chalmers. <laughs> or possibly even jealous of anything that's not Chalmers. That'd be awful, wouldn't it? And yet it's here in the disciples. We've now planted a church at Redeemer. We're training people in the ministry associate program and the ministers in training program. Easy to think, well, we really trust our network, the churches we plant. We really trust our people, the, the people we train. Fine if you're one of us. That's not right at all. Sometimes we use the phrase um, team charmers uh, around. I don't know if you've heard that said by anyone. Uh, and there's, there's some truth in that. Like Philippians in the evenings, we're saying we do want to team up for the gospel. As a local church, we want to be in one mind, kind of striving for the gospel. Actually, I'm not sure the Lord Jesus recognizes the phrase team charmers. It's just one team, team Jesus. That's what matters. As we look around the, church, the, look around the city of Edinburgh... The only thing that matters is whether churches are on Jesus' team. That doesn't just mean mentioning his name. Uh, when he says, in my name, um, name in the Bible is often someone's revealed character, not just a kind of a tag f f to describe them by. So we're talking about churches that actually have Jesus as king, i.e. listening to the Bible, trusting what Jesus says, proclaiming Christ crucified. But any church like that, whatever size, shape, denomination... Any church proclaiming Jesus as Lord, or we're to rejoice in, partner with, pray for, that kind of ministry. 
We're actually at the sharp end of this at the moment, I think, in terms of where we are in the year, because this is the time when people are checking out churches. There's an awful lot of kind of church visiting, church shopping going on, Um, undergraduates arriving, uh, new workers and graduates appearing, uh, retired folk moving into Edinburgh. There's even the kind of just emerging from pandemic and thinking I, I really ought to meet somewhere locally, not just watch things online. Lots of people shopping around. And the question is, as we chat to people and welcome people, which I hope we do, that was point two, but as we, help, as we welcome people, the question is, are we genuinely glad? We just want them to settle somewhere where, where people will hear of Jesus and his word. Or do we want them somewhere with a Chalmers label on it? I'm pleased to say, I think this genuinely is a church culture that has open-handed partnership with many others. We pray for a lot of other churches, both up front and, and in private, and we partner with lots of churches, but, but we've got to keep doing that, keep in step daily with the King, this pattern of suffering service, of humble, compassionate service, which means teamwork, not tribalism, in his name. Okay, our time's up. Um, I hope you can see what, how those two examples, of are we, are we willing to welcome the least impressive, and are we willing to work with anyone who is submitting to Jesus and, and in his name, I hope you see how they flow out of the big picture of Jesus' example, where he puts himself last in order to serve others, in order to walk the path to the cross. Downward mobility for the salvation of others. And just as I close, just to come back to the story of that that actor and the the National Theatre, sometimes there is a straight choice between whether I'm going to stick with Jesus or try and protect my reputation. I don't know if you've ever felt that. You definitely will feel that if you've come to university um, as a Christian. A straight choice. Happened to me in that room. Uh, we sat down around the table, and he invited me to, to say some stuff about grace, the theme of grace, which was in their play that they were doing. And I knew that you can't explain grace if you don't explain sin. I knew that to be, to be faithful to Jesus, I just had to explain that everyone was in trouble in the room and only Jesus could forgive them. And I knew that the moment I did that, they'd think, whoa, who is this guy? <laughs> Let's not have him back. I don't know what it will be for you. But at the time, I, I, I did manage to say something. It was pretty wimpy. I wish I'd been clearer, but I said something. But as I've looked back on that, I've thought to myself, why wasn't it clearer in my head that given a choice of being with the famous actor and all his friends and the cast, or with the Lord Jesus, the Lord of glory, given the choice of who do I want to associate with, where does true greatness lie? Well, looking back, I'm amazed that I found it so difficult. I mean, yes, it's scary, but of course I'd want to be with the King of glory, the one who's coming back. Of course I'd want to say, I'm with him. And I pray that will be us as a church this year. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we don't find this at all easy, walking in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus, following a cross-bound Christ. And yet we can see the call loud and clear that that is basic discipleship. That is what he calls of anyone who will follow him. And so we do pray by your spirit that you would help us as a church family and as individuals to be downwardly mobile in our reputation, in our resources, in all sorts of ways, downwardly mobile 
for the sake of others' salvation. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.